Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, if you would, please, and keep them open. We'll be looking at a couple of other chapters. <clears throat> As this morning, we consider a topical sermon on evangelism. We have been in a series which I have entitled The Portrait of a Christian, Drawn with the Scripture Pencil. That is, when you look at the Scripture, what is the picture of a Christian that we find in the Bible. And I've been using that title to cover uh, some weaknesses which uh, the leadership has seen in our congregation in an attempt but by preaching and addressing them, they might be corrected and improved. And I note that they are weaknesses, not absences. So uh, as with most things in uh, the Christian walk, we can always do better. I think everyone would acknowledge that. We began by looking at corporate prayer and at least I was convicted by the amount of uh, ink that the Bible spends on the subject of corporate prayer and would encourage you uh, to continue, uh, whether it's at prayer meeting on Tuesday night or whether it's in small groups or whether it's uh, with others in whatever venue, uh, to continue in corporate prayer. Um, then we looked at uh, every member ministry that the task of the pastor-teacher, uh, myself, Pastor Dan, uh, is to equip you, the members, for the work of ministry, that you are to do the ministry. So I repeat the question that was presented to you two weeks ago. What is your ministry at Messiah's Reform Fellowship? And uh, if you need help with answering that question, be more than glad to help you with that. Last week, we looked at why worship twice um, on Sunday. And we noticed that God had set apart one day as distinct from the other days of the week, and he blessed it. Um, he sanctified it. That one day in seven is a special day. Um, it's called the Sabbath um, in the Bible. And it's not an hour. Um, it's not three hours. It's a day. Um, it's a whole day. And we noted that it's a day where God wants to cultivate, even consummate, um, reverently, uh, use that term, um, his relationship with you as his uh, child, his son or daughter, and that therefore we ought to take advantage of that day. And then secondly, we noted that why we worship twice is because preaching is the main means of grace. That is how God communicates and conveys grace to you as his people, uh, and that the preached word of God is the word of God. That when uh, a man uh, faithfully stands in this pulpit and explains and applies this word, uh, Jesus Christ uh, is speaking to you, and we noted that when we meet with God, uh, I'm sorry, that when we gather for worship, we're meeting with God, um, and that actually we're no longer at 61 um, uh, Gramercy Park North, but we have entered into heaven with thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. It's really glorious when you think of it, so uh, that's why we worship twice. And then today, I want to look at evangelism, and next week we'll conclude by looking at tithing. And uh, so, having said that, look with me at John chapter 1, if you will. We'll begin in verse um, 29 and read through 46. Hear what follows for what it is, the word of God. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. He is John the baptizer here. He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Um, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. That's who we're going to be particularly concerned about this morning. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. I want to acknowledge my indebtedness uh, to um, the pastor of a church that I attended. I attended a a month or so ago a conference in Alabama, and uh, it was on church revitalization, church planting, and church acceleration, and uh, it was very helpful to me and prompted me uh, in uh, uh, preaching this message with uh, a lot of very helpful uh, information. So I want to acknowledge and I'm indebted to uh, that particular pastor. Um, I have been preaching this series uh, not uh, uh, or, or avoiding as much as possible uh, uh, promoting guilt um, in you. That's a, a very common motivational tool for preachers, but it's a very bad one, all right? Uh, we want to be motivated uh, by grace, not by guilt, and I hope that I can continue that today. So there are four points uh, in this message. First of all, the messenger, that's going to be Andrew, all right? Secondly, there's the message. Thirdly, there are the methods. Uh, Fourthly, the mission of Messiah's Reform Fellowship. So the messenger, the message, the methods, and the mission of Messiah's Reform Fellowship. If you know your Bible well, you know that John um, is written with uh, an evangelical, or I should say more specifically, an evangelistic intent. Look with me, if you will, uh, at the end of the gospel, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's kind of a little bit of cheating. It's kind of looking at how the story ends, right, to find out uh, what it's all about, all right? And John tells us, he also tells us in his first letter why he's written that first letter. He tells us here why he's written this gospel account. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have uh, life in his name. All right, notice the signs, all right? Uh, there are a number of evangelistic 
markers in the book of John around the number seven, which in Israel was particularly uh, significant, having to do with fullness. And uh, uh, there are seven signs in uh, the gospel of John. Uh, The water turned to wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the lame man at the pool, the feeding of 5,000, walking on water, healing of the man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There are also seven I am statements. Uh, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, uh, etc., etc. And there are also seven encounters um, uh, that Jesus has with specific individuals. And then there are seven feasts in the book of John as well. So you can see, and there's more than that I won't repeat to you, but there are this, this number seven is prominent, and they're all indicators pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, in order that hearers, uh, or readers in our case, might believe, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So we want to look, first of all, at the messenger in John chapter 1, and the messenger that we want to consider is Andrew, all right? And I've subtitled this uh, sermon, Bring Them to Him, so that you can bring Him to them. In essence, that's what evangelism is, all right? It's bringing people to Jesus and bringing Jesus to people. And a personification of that is seen in Andrew, Um, in our text, all right? So in chapter 1, look at verse 40, all right? One of the two who had heard John speak, followed Jesus, was Andrew. What did he do? He first found his own brother Simon and said, we found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus, all right? Andrew, we're going to see repeatedly in chapter 6 and in chapter 12 as well, is bringing people to Jesus or bringing Jesus to people, all right? This is what evangelism is, all right? Uh, We read on, uh, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, where? The city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets spoke. Nathanael said, can anything good What you have here is a chain or a sequence, all right? Andrew uh, brings Philip, Philip brings Nathaniel, and it goes like that, all right? We're going to see that eventually that Peter comes. What does Peter do? Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and you have 5,000 people get saved, 3,000. And then a little bit later on, you have 5,000. And this is how the church grows. It grows through evangelism, and it grows through people bringing... excuse me, people bringing people to Jesus and bringing Jesus to people. It's as simple as that, all right? Um, And look at verse 46, all right? We're going to have occasion to note this under the third point in terms of methods, but uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. How many times when you talk to somebody about the Lord, you talk to somebody about the gospel, they're like, ah, I'm not so sure, I don't know, one thing or the other, right? And you're like, hey, well, look, come and see, all right? What does it mean to come and see? Bring them to church. Bring them to a Bible study. Bring them to your home group, whatever. Right? We're going to talk about this later on. Right? But just invite somebody. Say, hey, come and see. Check it out for yourself. It's not just my opinion. It's not just my, uh, my understanding. No, come and see. Find out for yourself. Right? Uh, and notice right, that in order to bring people to Jesus, you must first come to him. All right? So um, have you come to him? 
as Lord and Savior? Have you come to him and placed your trust in him? Have you come to him, turned from your sins, and trusted in Jesus as the one who alone can forgive you of sins and give you eternal life? Have you come to him? There's no sense enlisting you in an evangelistic enterprise if you have not first come to him. If you don't know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, please don't be involved in evangelism at all, all right? Your first responsibility is to get alone with Jesus and say, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved. And I know that you alone are qualified to be a savior. And I want you to save me. All right? So you must first come to him. Notice also um, in the text, verses 41, 43, and 45, how many times the word found is written. All right? Now, what is, what's my point there? This is an intentional action on Andrew's part and others' parts. They were intentional about it. It wasn't circumstantial, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't, right? It's not just something that happened uh, on the spur of the moment. No, they were intentional. They sought people out. And evangelism, I would encourage you to be intentional about evangelism. More upon that uh, in a moment. So uh, look, turn over to chapter 6 where we see Andrew mentioned again, all right? In verses 1 through 15. Now there are a number of things that are significant here. And we're not in an exposition of the entirety of the Gospel of uh, John. But suffice it to say that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And therefore everything that is written here by John for you and for me is notable. Or it's noteworthy. Okay, and I'll do my best in the short period of time allowed to me this morning to make this understood, all right? First of all, we read in verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, why are there two names? Well, the Romans were building a city called Tiberias, right? And they named the sea the Sea of Tiberias. When I lived in Saudi Arabia, um, the eastern border of Saudi Arabia was the Persian Gulf, all right? But when you were in Saudi Arabia, you, you better not call it the Persian Gulf because that indicated it belonged to Iran, right? No, when you're in Saudi Arabia, you have to call that the Arabian Gulf, all right? So the same thing here, one body of water, two names. Why? Well, the Romans are going to call it Tiberias, Jews are going to call it Galilee, all right? So you have Jew and Gentile references here, all right? <clears throat> you should also note that the, on the other side of the sea was wilderness, all right? It's, uh, this miracle in John chapter 6 is the only one that's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? So we actually, from the Gospels, can glean a lot of information about this area. We know that previously, or on another occasion at least, when Jesus was in that area, he healed a demoniac, right? And if you remember that story, the demoniac wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, no, stay here and tell others what, what's happened to you, all right? Now, that's going to be significant because apparently he was on a missionary enterprise after his encounter with Jesus. Look on. Um, verse 10. There was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000. So apparently this demoniac who had been healed and saved by Jesus has been on a missionary enterprise, and in this wilderness uh, and amongst the Decapolis, He's got 5,000 people interested in Jesus, and they're coming to say, what's going on? What's all, the, what's all the scuttlebutt about? Who's this Jesus? We want to know more. They're coming and seeing, right? Because somebody brought them 
to him, okay? All right, anyway, read on. Uh, we have uh, found here, all right, um, uh, verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus went up on the mountain, that's the Golan Heights, if you're familiar with the geography. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, all right? And what do we see here down in verse 6? Well, uh, he said this to test him, all right? Uh, for he himself knew what he would do, and Philip answered. Where'd Philip come from? Philip came from Andrew, all right? And now Philip's there, okay? And uh, um, I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Uh, turn over to verse 12. Uh, sorry, chapter 12. Chapter 12. And we see Andrew again, all right? Uh, verse 20 and following in chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. What's Bethsaida? Andrew and Philip's hometown, right? In Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I'm going to return to this, so just hold your place, all right? The point is, is that the messenger is Andrew, and we see him bringing people to Jesus or bringing Jesus to people, all right? He is the personification of an evangelist in the gospel according to John. Now, we want to look at what's the message that Andrew has? Well, or Andrew is entrusted with. Turn back to John 1. We'll look at this in sequence. John 1. John 1, verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you look back at verse 29, you see John the baptizer, all right? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you know you caught the reference. Now, John is a Jew, and he's writing to Jews and Gentiles. But he expects that his audience is going to understand when he says this. This is a reference to the Exodus. And it's significant, as we're going to see in John 6 and in John 12, that the Passover, Passover is a feast of the Jews that commemorates uh, the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. And you'll remember what occurred in the Exodus of uh, Israel from Egypt. Well, the last plague was the plague on the firstborn. And God told Israel, get a lamb and slay the lamb, and put his blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house, so that when the angel of death passes over, he will see the blood of the slain lamb, and he will not kill your firstborn. You will be spared, you will be saved, because of the blood of a lamb that is slain in place. What is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. God provided the lamb to have its blood shed in the place of the sinner so that when the angel of death saw the blood, he wouldn't kill the firstborn, would spare them instead. And the Passover was a commemoration of that feast. So when, Jesus, uh, when we hear here the message, the message is Jesus is the sacrificed substitute whose blood shed will save us from our sins. All right? Okay? All right, very good. 
In Luke chapter 9, some of you have heard me say this in the past, but uh, I take my instruction from Mr. Urban, who says repetition is the teacher's friend. In Luke chapter 9, look, at, look there if you would quickly. Luke 9, verse 31. Verse 29, as he was praying, right? This is the transfiguration. The appearance of his face was altered, his clothes became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with the Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, you see a footnote reference there? Look down at the bottom of the page, look at the footnote. His exodus. What's Luke telling you? The same thing that John is telling you. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. All right, And when he goes to Jerusalem to sacrifice himself on the cross, to shed his blood, he does it as a substitute that there might be a new exodus. An exodus not from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh and Egypt, but exodus from bondage and slavery to sin and Satan. Jesus is the new Israel. All right, you can... Pastor Dan does a great job uh, about this biblical theology, so I'm not going to elaborate on it more. You want to get full, uh, full picture of this, all right? What the gospel writers are presenting to us is that Jesus is recapitulating the story of Israel and fulfilling it in his life and in his death. He is Israel, all right? He's going to perform a new exodus. He is the Lamb of God whose blood shed will spare those who look to him and trust in him from death, the wages of sin, as he substitutes himself in their place. Are, are you with me here? I, I hope I'm not being too complicated. All right, all right, very good. Uh, all right, turn over to Luke 6. We're looking at the message here, all right? Luke 6. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. John 6, John 6. Now, what's going on here? First of all, we're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. It's wilderness, all right? <clears throat> Verse 2, people are coming because they saw the signs. Remember, there are seven signs which are pointing to Jesus, that he's the Messiah, so that believing in him, you would have life in his name, right? So we see the signs. Verse 4, we see that it's the Passover, all right? All these are indicate, right? Uh, the feast of the Jews was at hand, all right? Verse 10, all right? <clears throat> Have the people sit down. There was much grass in this place. Hmm. Why is the Holy Spirit leading John to note this particular thing? All scripture is inspired, God breathed, and profitable, right? What's going on here, all right? Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the, knee, uh, took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, as uh, Mike DeZigo would know, right? Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That was the prayer that Jesus prayed. Jews still pray that prayer today. All right? Why did he give him thanks? Because he recognized that God had given the bread, and he's thanking God as the source of every good gift, right? But he gives, uh, he gives a, a little bit of um, he gives them uh, bread, right? He feeds them with bread. The demoniac has done his job. You got 5,000 people coming. 
And verse 14, the people finally get it. And what do they get? I'll tell you in a moment. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, what happened as a result of the Passover and the Exodus? Israel was brought out into the wilderness. What did they do in the wilderness? They cried out, and God gave them bread. They cried out again, and God gave them meat. And here Jesus gives them bread and fish to feed them in the wilderness. And, not insignificantly, he has them sit down on a field of grass because he is the good shepherd who feeds his flock. Psalm 23 come to mind? All right? What's the message? Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Jesus is Israel. He is the one who's going to commit this exodus anew, afresh, to release people from bondage and slavery to sin. And when they say that he's the prophet, all right, they get it. They finally get what's going on. They put all the pieces of the picture together. They hear the message, and they understand that who Jesus is, all right? All right, turn over to chapter 12, the message. John 1, John 6, John 12. What's the message? Verse 23. Well, let's just go through this. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, all right, were some Greeks. These probably God-fearers, all right? They weren't Jews, um, not circumcised, so they don't become members of Israel, but they're God-fearers, they're Greeks, they're Gentiles who were interested in the one true God. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. They bring them to him, all right? And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now again, I rely on you being good students of the Bible, but allow me to tell you if you're not, all right? You'll know that up until this point in the Gospel of John or in the life and ministry of Jesus, five times he has said to his disciples, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Five times he says it. Look at the text. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. From this point on is basically the last week of Jesus' life, where John is going to spend it on his, uh, on his last days with his disciples, the f- uh, farewell discourse at the, uh, the last Passover, the first supper in John 14, 16, and then his arrest, then his trial, and then his crucifixion. And what does Jesus say? Just that in this passage. Look at uh, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus speaking, for what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Read on. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it had said, said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to them. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. His hour has come. The hour of what? The hour for him to be lifted up. Lifted up where? Lifted up on the cross. Lifted up to death. Lifted up as the Lamb of God, as the Passover Lamb, who's going to offer himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners on the cross. Now, in that act, 
Jesus and the Father will be glorified. We're on the message here. So what's the message? The message is the crucifixion of Jesus. That by his crucifixion, he offers himself as a substitute, a sacrifice, and a priest to offer that sacrifice, to be punished in the place of sinners for their sins, and to transfer to them his obedience and his righteousness. Once again, the great double right imputation or double imposition, right, is that Jesus takes the sins of his people upon himself, and God makes him who knew no sin to be sin. He is punished as the substitute, and by his shed blood, our sins are forgiven, and he gives to those who trust in him, who turn from their sins, his obedience and his righteousness, right? So we have the messenger, we have the message, John 1, John 6, John 12, all right? What are the methods, all right? What are the methods? Well, as we've already seen in chapter 1, come and see, all right? Listen, I've been in ministry about 35 years, all right? And since, actually, since the first weekend I was a Christian, I've been doing evangelism, teaching evangelism, promoting evangelism. I, I, I got saved in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, by a couple who didn't know me from a hill of beans. Now, uh, I stand before you dressed and in my right mind, but if you had known me before I was a Christian, if you saw me walking down the street, I was the kind of person you'd probably cross the street to avoid. My goal in life was to become a hell's angel and die by the time I was 30, and I was doing a good job of it, all right? <clears throat> These people didn't know me from a hill of beans. All they knew was I was lost. And they invited me to their home to spend the weekend. And they hammered me with the gospel. They said, we think you're a neat guy. We want you to get saved. And I was like, who are they talking about? And they just loved me that whole weekend. And the older man was referred to fondly as the John Wayne evangelist because he shoots them dead with the gospel. And he shot me dead. That was it. I marked the beginning of my Christian life that weekend in Baltimore from these people who didn't know me. I had never met them, never talked to them. All they knew was I was lost and I needed Jesus. They said, come and see. Come and see. You got questions? We got answers. You got problems? We have solutions. Come and see. And they invited me into their home and I marked the beginning of my Christian life. I mentioned that because I didn't have a church, Right? So I used to drive to Baltimore to go to church. I'd get out of work. I was working on the World Financial Center downtown. I'd get out of work Friday afternoon, drive all the way to Baltimore to go to church on Sunday. I drove down there the very next weekend. After that weekend, when I got saved, they said, well, now you're going to tell others the gospel. We're going to a gospel mission. You're going to stand up and give a gospel presentation. So from the first week, I was a Christian. I was doing evangelism. They were saying, you, you, now you've got to tell others to come and see. And I did that. So... Evangelism is as simple as saying, come and see. Come and see. Maybe you don't know enough to talk to them like that couple did, like Doug and Elaine did down in Baltimore. Mark. Bring them to church. Come and see. Somebody had somebody here in the congregation had somebody sleep over a few weeks ago, and they brought them to church on Sunday. Not a Christian, but they were kind enough to invite them. They were kind enough to accept the invitation and come. Now, to my knowledge, they haven't been back, but, but that's kind of how it is. Come and see. 
How many do you see? It's a, it's a, 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 a low confrontation kind of point, right? You don't have to deal with anybody. Just, just come and see. Bring them to your neighborhood groups, all right? Bring them into your home. Invite them over for uh, dinner on the weekend or whatever. Second method, all right? Pray. Pray. And I want to be very intentional here because I'm encouraging you to be intentional. Our mission is to share the love of Christ with our neighbors where we live, work, study, and play. Who do you know where you live, work, study, and play that needs Jesus? Pray for them. Pray for them by name. Specifically, intentionally, right? Pray for them, Lord, and then pray for an opportunity. Pray for an open door. All of us are afraid, right? None of us wants to confront other people. We're all scared of doing evangelism, right? But simply pray. It's a whole lot harder not to talk to somebody when God opens a door, when you've been praying for them before the throne of grace every day. Pray for them. Pray for them by name. Don't pray generically, Lord, I pray that you'd save the world. All right, well, all right, save the world. Good thing, right? But pray for people by name. Pray for them specifically. Pray for them specifically by, uh, by name. Pray for God's op- to opportunities and open doors. Be intentional. And if I could say nothing else, witness by your lifestyle. Turn with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. Maybe everything I've mentioned so far is still too intimidating. 1 Peter chapter 3. You know this verse, or at least most of you know it. Verse 15. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give an answer, right? So maybe you're not the talkative type. Maybe you're not the confrontational type. Maybe you're too intimidated to even say, come and see or invite somebody to church. Maybe you're praying, all right? And now somebody asks a question. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Can you answer questions? Can you lead somebody to Jesus? Well, my point here is, why should you always be prepared? Well, if you read 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter 2, and earlier in chapter 3, you see it's because of the way that Peter is instructing Christians to live, all right? Look, for example, at verse 12 in chapter 2. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, verse 17, uh, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear, good, uh, fear God, honor the emperor. Um, verse uh, 20, what credit is it when you sin and are beaten, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, for it's to this you've been called, right? Or chapter 3, even if some do not obey the word, talking to wives, they may be, uh, their husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That's a fascinating verse. This is speechless evangelism. This is evangelism with no words. You know, when I teach people about evangelism, is the communication of a message. It's the verbal communication of a message. Here's evangelism with no words. A husband's going to be saved by seeing the conduct of their wife. Fascinating, right? Look at um, 
uh, verse 4, an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 6, if you do good and do not fear. Verse 7, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. All right. Uh, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, that you may obtain a blessing. Uh, verse 10, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And verse 16, having a good conscience, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good. Do you see the emphasis? The emphasis over and over in these ethical exhortations is on your behavior. He's saying, live a certain way, do good, be honorable, love the brethren, be all these things, right? He says, why? Because then people are going to ask. And when they ask, you always have to be prepared to tell them. So if everything that I've said previously intimidates you, all right, just live a righteous life. Believe me, if you are living a righteous life in New York City, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. You're not going out after work with the crew to snort coke and get boozed up. You're going to stand out like a sore thumb, right? You're not talking demeaning jokes about women around the water cooler. You're going to stand out like a sore thumb. You're not bad-mouthing your husband and putting down men. You're going to stand out like a sore thumb. You're living righteously when everybody else is living wickedly. You're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Sooner or later, somebody's going to come, and they're going to say, what's with you? What is it with you? Well, let me tell you. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. That's why. Come and see. Let me tell you. All right? Okay. Turn to Matthew 28 quickly. We're going to conclude here, all right? Matthew chapter 28. What's the mission of Messiah's Reform Fellowship? Matthew chapter 28. You all know it, I hope. Great commission, right? The whole ministry of the church is here. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's the mission of the church? What's the mission of this church? What's the mission of Messiah's Reform Fellowship? It's right there in verse 19. Make disciples of all nations. Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating because I've learned from Eddie Urban to always repeat myself, right? Is, what's the mission of the church? It's make disciples of all nations. In God's providence, God has brought every nation to our doorstep. We have the unique opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission without ever leaving New York. Now, look, you want to go to Colombia or if you want to go to some other country, all right, God bless you, we'll support you, we'll pray for you, that's great. I'm glad God has put that on your heart, no problem, right? But you don't have to go to fulfill the Great Commission. God has brought all the nations here. What a unique opportunity we have in the providence of God in this congregation to make disciples of all nations. And, of course, we have 28 nationalities represented in this congregation, all right, what, what, such a big mission, right? Make disciples. How do you make disciples? Well, here's evangelism, going. You make disciples by going. 
right? Make disciples by going. Well, what happens after they come and see and believe? Well, you baptize them in the name of the Father, and then you teach them. You disciple them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You enfold them into the ministry of the church. You get them connected. You get them plugged in. You establish relationships, and then you disciple them. You teach them the Bible. You get them in a neighborhood group. You get them in Thursday night Bible study, whatever, so that they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, right? That's that. And then what's the result of that? Well, look back at verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. The end result, right, is worship. Getting somebody saved is not what evangelism is all about. It's part of it. Don't misunderstand me. But we're after glorifying God. We want people to come in to glorify God. And worship is the end product, right? Worship is the end product. That's why unless somebody is baptized into a local assembly, a local Christian body, a church, right, and is attending and worshiping God, they shouldn't be considered a Christian. Right? I don't care how many times they walked the sawdust trail. I don't know how many times they prayed the sinner's prayer. All right? Unless they are baptized into a church and are joining in a body and glorifying, exalting, and worshiping God, well, then they're falling short. All right? Notice, be encouraged here. All right? They worshiped him, but some doubted. These weren't perfect people. They were flawed. You can read all about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are a bunch of schlemiels and schlemazels. They didn't have their act together. Right? They doubted. After Jesus is risen from the dead, they doubted. But there they are, worshiping God, despite all their flaws, despite all their imperfections, despite all their, their shortcomings. Now, one final encouragement, then we're done. Going to land this plane, I promise. All right? Okay. What's your greatest encouragement? It'd be very easy for me to guilt you into this. I don't want to. I want to encourage you, right? Jesus gives it to you in this text. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus says, my power is what will bring this about. The risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ says, everything is mine. God the Father promised those nations to me, the ends of the earth for my possession, the nations for my inheritance. Go and make them disciples. Based on my power is with you. And look at the end, verse 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. Not only my power, Jesus says, but my presence. Literally, in the word order here, it says, I myself am with you. I myself am with you. What greater encouragement could we have? No. All right, I'm going to land the plane. We're coming, we're coming in. All right, all right. Here are the disciples. Put yourself in their sandals. You're standing on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Ocean, right? They just crucified your master. The religious authorities are going to come, and they're going to come after you. They're going to harangue you. They're going to harass you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to kill you. The civil authorities are against you as well. This is the Roman Empire, after all. We get to the Book of Romans. Nero's lighting Christians, uh, lighting Christians on fire as torches for his parties, right? And Jesus stands there and says, 
Go and make disciples of all these nations. Now, let's be honest, folks. I'll be honest with you. If I was standing there and Jesus said that to me, I may not have said it, but I most certainly would have thought it. (laughs) Yeah, right. And Jesus says, my power and my presence are with you. Do not be afraid. Do not shrink back. Just be faithful and let the chips fall where they may. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the commission you have entrusted to us as your church. Help us to be faithful, not fearful, and grant us grace. Grant us your presence, the presence of the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit. And bless our efforts, meager though they be. For Jesus' sake, amen and amen.